Romans 12, we've reached verse 9. Paul is moving into the section of the epistle where he's talking about Christian duty. He has begun to talk about a reasonable surrender of our lives to him as living sacrifices. And then kind of our place in the body of Christ in relation to that, all of us having a a function being connected to the head, which is Jesus Christ, and his life working out through us in its various ways. And now in 9 down through the rest of this chapter, he's going to kind of give us a short staccato um, gallery, if you will, of the Christian life. He's just going to name a bunch of fruits. These are the types of things when the law of the spirit of life in Christ is real in someone, These are the things that begin to come from their life. So he says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. We're going to read it down so we get the feel. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think if we look at that, certainly there's a, we'll walk through and anywhere we read through this, you can take something and say, all right, Lord, certainly I need to work on this. I can see how this thing is immediately applicable to my life. But in, in all of it, I think there's also supposed to be a, almost a summary of life. Like if we were to live God gives us time. All of these things in in any Christian's life should find their place. There should be somebody in our life who can say, they were this, or I saw this, or at this point, this is what was reflected in their life in in one way. I was actually just talking to Gil, who told me he was at a brother's funeral doing it. He said his mother outlived him, but as he was passing, She actually read this passage over him, godly man, and said, you could go. This this was your life. And I think in in a real way, this we if we're thinking about the Christian life, there's all types of ideas of that out there, what that should look like, what people should be. Certainly the world we just talked about it wants to conform us into a particular type of image. But if we want to know what a Christian should be, I think you could just kind of humbly read through this passage and say, does my life have that flavor? This is the flavor that my life should have. When I come to the end of it, there should be those who can say any of these things about me. 
They loved me. They were hospitable. They extended grace. When I cursed them, they didn't curse back at me. When they should have taken vengeance, they didn't. When, when I met them, they were kind, right? This, the, whole kind of, the whole kind of thing should end up being a summary of the life of Christ in us that should be seen. So today, certainly, I would imagine in all of our lives, there's a particular thing that the Lord would want to show us and work on. But lest we kind of, I think, lose it in maybe a particular, just to read the whole thing and think, you know what? That should be my testimony in the end, that I live this type of life. This, this is a summary of what a Christian life should be. So, again, let's skip back to the beginning, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Let love be without hypocrisy. Paul begins to speak of our individual service, certainly towards men, to those of the household of God, to those outside of that. And he begins the whole thing with the golden rule to love, particularly without hypocrisy. Um, one of the cool things I, I think about the early churches, it seems like there was so much genuine love in the early church that people who entered into it that didn't actually have that genuine love in their hearts had to fake it to fit in. That the Ananias and Sapphira have to act like they actually sold everything they have and wanted to give it for other people. They had to pretend to be loving to actually enter into the community there, right? That was, there was a unique, uh, just Christ-like selfless love to almost connect yourself to these people that if you were going to do it, you either had to have that love in you or fake it. And here Paul is saying, no, let's love one another and let's love genuinely. Let's, let's love without hypocrisy. Our love should be simple. That's totally fine. It should be genuine. It should be your love. Again, we just talked about the uniqueness about the body of Christ and how we're all different. We're not the same. And God expects different things from us. And so the way we're love is going to be unique. You don't need to act more spiritual than you are. Sometimes we don't feel loving, but the reality is it can be love. If I want to punch somebody in the face and I don't, that can be loving. That, that can actually be growth in a Christian's life. But if I act like I'm more loving than I am, then that's hypocrisy, right? If it's just like, I know I need to love them more. I didn't hit them. I need to get it together, right? That, it doesn't mean you don't have Christian love. It means you're working on it. That, that could be where you're at. That's okay. Let your love be genuine. Because the reality is, if I love genuinely, and God has created us all uniquely, then the way we're going to love is going to differ. And it, the, the body of Christ is going to have its varied experience of love. Um, for me to love the body of Christ would be to pastor. That's, that's part of the way I can love the body of Christ. I don't have other gifts to do other things. So this is one of the ways I do it. But I'm also a husband, so my love there is going to look different, and my skills in the home circle are different than my skills here. I have some, and others I don't. And so the way I'm going to love is, is particular. I'm a father. That's going to look like certain things. I'm a friend. 
Right? You, you have these various offices in life, and you are who God made you. And if I just love genuinely in those things, there's going to be a unique expression of that in the body of Christ. And so I don't need to fake it or love like other people. I just need to be who God created me to be and love the people that he puts around me, both saved and unsaved. And my love should just be without hypocrisy. <clears throat> it should be genuine. Again, Jesus, we just read in John, would say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. The unsaved world should look at us and say, man, that's a loving group of people. Look at the way they love one another. It's not uniform, but it's genuine. There's something sincere there. <clears throat> so if I have to put on hypocrisy, if I have to fake like I love somebody in a way that I don't, okay, don't do that. And just love genuinely where you can, how the Lord has worked that in your own life. And hopefully we'll be the type of community that's like that early church was. And if I also love genuinely, I will, notice he says next, abhor what is evil. We don't usually use the word abhor anymore. Um, that you could say you hate it, you don't love something. Godly love is going to hate evil and cling to what is good. Certainly, there is, I believe, a proportionality to that. If I really love what is good, I will, in proportion to the way I love that, also have a response to what is against it. Tozer, in his book, Success in the Christian, said, The question arises, does God actually hate anything? Sure he does. He says so. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, from Hebrews 1.9. It's a psychological impossibility to love anything without hating its opposite. If I love holiness, I hate sin. If I love truth, I hate lies. If I love honesty, I hate dishonesty. If I love purity, I hate filth. Hate is only bad when it is aimed against people made in the image of God or when it springs out of some unworthy or low motive like jealousy or envy or anger. We should learn to hate what Jesus hates. I'm sure that if we had the mind of Christ intellectually, so that we judge things the way he judges them, there would be less need for preaching separation from the world than there is today among Christians. We, we should have, if we have the Spirit of God, a, a hate, an abhorrence, a disdain for the things that he also is not pleased in. And <clears throat> if I'm truly going to love genuinely the way God does, that will happen. I think that's a good thing to pray for. We should pray that the, we should hate more the things that we should, that we wouldn't be as tempted by them, that we would have God's eyes for them and God's hearts for things that is displeasing, and that we would then, in proportion, cling to what is good. We can't just hate evil things. Some of us, that might be a little easier than others. We dislike these things or the world or scenarios. But we also need to cling to love what is good, to give ourselves to the things that are good in God's sight, 
to, to not just stay away from the things that we know are bad, or maybe we try to stay away from the things that are mostly really bad, and then we kind of float around and bathe in kind of the worldly less bad things. We wonder why we see less grace in our lives, or we're not as desirous for good things. Well, if I just fill my life up with junk, I'm going to be less desirous for good things. Same with my belly. If if I'm just eating a whole bunch of ice cream, I'm not going to want healthy things for me. And I think most of us have experienced something like that along the line. So what we're supposed to do in our spiritual life is also to give ourselves to things that are good. We Sometimes there's even a weird desire to, to look into evil things, like I got to know what it is or what's there. No. You should look into things that are good. Become an expert on godly things. It's okay if you're ignorant of sinful things. God would say this about his people in Jeremiah. For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. God looked at his people at one point, and he said, They're wise with everything that's evil in the world. But to do good, they have no knowledge. And you and I should not be those that are wise about what is evil, but no knowledge of what is good. We should cling to what is good. We should love those things and give ourselves to them. In 10, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. That in the family of God, particularly, I think the love in, was general for everybody, particularly when it began, let love be without hypocrisy. But here he says, have brotherly love, kindly affectionate to one another. That's the word Philadelphia. We should have that friendly, brotherly love in the body of Christ, particularly for the body of Christ. Galatians says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those of the household of God, or of faith. That there's a particular focus when I realize every brother or sister in Christ that I meet is my brother or sister in Christ for eternity. They're the family of God forever. And even if I just meet them on a plane flight to one place, and that's the only time I'll meet them in my life, I'm still going to know them forever. And that's where we build our relationship. When I get in heaven, they'll either be like, you were a really rude person to sit next to. I forgive you. Or they're going to say, you were kind and loving. Man, good to see you again. So there's, there's supposed to be a particular brotherly love and affection to honor one another. He says to give preference to one another. I, I think that's just, it's basic in the sense of, Whatever honor or preference you feel like you deserve, like somebody should say hello to me. Or people should be kind to me in the parking lot. Or, you know, you want a deference of choice or the benefit of the doubt in a scenario, right? We, we have all types of things that we think we deserve as we interact with people. What, what Paul is saying is, okay, give that to somebody else first. 
Whatever you think it is, whatever type of honor, whatever type of preference you think you deserve, transfer that to your brother or sister in Christ first. Give them that honor or that preference first. Because there's supposed to be something unique about this family. And it is what is going to make your heart unblameable before Christ. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 3, I love this passage. He'd say, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love one to another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. What Paul says is, I'm praying your love would increase and abound toward one another. So that when Jesus shows up with all the saints, your heart will be blameless in holiness. How, how will I be blameless on that day? Well, if, if I'm loving to all the saints that I come across, when Jesus shows up with all the saints, my heart will be blameless. I won't have to say to that saint, sorry, sorry. Right? I'll, I'll be blameless in holiness in that moment. So you and I, we have an exhortation to allow that love to increase and abound. We should pray that God would call us, uh, God would work that in our hearts to honor and give preference to the brothers and sisters in Christ that we meet as we have opportunity again, that Galatians tells us. Times that you don't have opportunity, but there are plenty of times that we do. And as that opportunity comes up, then that's where we're supposed to step in. He says in 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I think these all, these all kind of tie together. The commentator Hendrickson translates it. I, I like his translation here. Never come behind in showing enthusiasm. Be aglow with the spirit. The word has the idea of literally burning, serving the Lord. Is that the description of our diligence, fervency, and service in relation to the Lord and what he's called us to. It's, it's the opposite of being lazy, cold, and selfish. If I'm lazy, cold, or selfish, I am not these things. God has given us a pretty incredible thing to do. We have purpose in our lives, purpose that is eternal. Even though the things that we are doing might seem humble to the world, seem like they don't really matter on a world stage. They are, in fact, the only things that matter. Just like when Jesus was on earth, what he was doing might not have seemed very applicable on the world stage, but they were, in fact, the only things that mattered. When he was in a house and he healed a mother-in-law of a fever, it doesn't seem earth-shattering, but to be connected with Jesus Christ and involved in what he was doing that was the most important thing on the face of the earth. And you and I have been invited into his body. We've been called to diligently give ourselves to him, to be fervent in spirit, to be serving our Lord. Jesus would say, he who reaps wages, or he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. He would say that to his disciples after his conversation with that woman at the well. There's only a little bit of time to sow and to reap. 
we got a little bit of time to prep for a really long time. And we should be diligent. We should realize that. Moses said, Lord, teach me to number my days that I could apply my heart to wisdom. I only have so much time to serve, to give ourselves to him, to be about his business. And we have an eternal work to be a part of. And it should just be evident in our lives. We should love God. We should love his house. We should love his people. We should love his worship. We should love his service. Like, if we don't like any of those things, we're really not going to like heaven. That is the fullest version of all those things. So there's a problem if there's not something of that in us. So he's just calling us to, to see it and to stir it up and to be involved in the type of the things that would stir those things up. We should be happy to praise him. We shouldn't sit there like totem poles. We should be happy to jump in and serve him, whatever that looks like and however he's gifted us. We should ask the Lord to give us a fervent spirit. Sometimes, you, you know, you're really feeling it, and sometimes you're not. But I, it can be a fervent spirit that pushes through. Sometimes it's the most fervent spirit that pushes through. It's easy to do things when you're really feeling it. You know, I'm always blessed as, as a pastor. Sometimes you're privy to, uh, you know, the personal things in people's lives and sometimes I'm just amazed when I see people in the sanctuary praising the Lord because you know what's happening in the background and to see that that fervent spirit there when you know man it's really hard for them to be here and here they are giving themselves to the Lord it's a blessing and it doesn't always mean we just feel great. It's not the get fired up for Jesus message that does it. It's the reality of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, showing us the priority of things in life. A true spirit that's burning with the things that God would have us to burn with. We're imperfect humans. If we realize we need more of these things, then just ask him. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. He said that. So Paul says we should Not be lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope in 12, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. Rejoicing in hope, and the idea is particularly the hope, the Christian hope, the hope of Christ's return and eternal life and all the promises that go with that. That type of hope should be something that causes us to rejoice It shouldn't just be a prophetic speculation. Sometimes people like getting into end time stuff and they like getting into all the kind of the speculative things around all of that, but it doesn't actually make them joyful. Sometimes it makes them angry or cruel or on edge. That's the wrong type of hope. (laughs) A biblical hope, the one that God is working in people's lives, is one that causes us to rejoice. It gives joy in life. It gave joy in these disciples' lives in some pretty incredible ways so that Paul, the apostle, could be thrown in a prison and beaten and sing worship songs at midnight. That's pretty remarkable hope that gives a unique rejoicing. That's the type of hope that we should have. It's centered in a love for a person and a trust in their promises and a 
faith that sees the reality of things not yet seen with the eye. We should have that type of hope, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, because they knew that was going to be a part of it. They were having hope because they weren't exactly where they were supposed to be yet. And a lot of what they faced was tribulation. Those early Christians knew this is a part of our life. Uh, the, the health and wealth gospel was not going around in the early church in that sense. They wa- the followers of Jesus watched the Son of God be unjustly murdered on a cross. They watched martyrs begin to pour out in Jerusalem. And they watched people get saved all over, get rejected from their families, lose their jobs, be a lower rung in society than they were before, but yet have a supernatural type of hope and joy that was unique. And the the encouragement was that we, through much tribulation, will inherit the kingdom of God. This This is a part of it. They weren't shocked by it. They understood that it was going to come. They didn't look for it. They weren't asking for it. They fled at times. But the reality was they just knew if we're going to live Christ's life on earth, people aren't going to like that. And we're going to face a certain amount of persecution. And the reality is you and I are going to face the same thing. But we're supposed to face it with patience, endurance. We don't, we don't want to get thrown off track. It's really sad when a person, you see them begin to walk with the Lord, something difficult comes into their life, and you just see them go off track. Maybe they're shocked that something tragic or hard can happen. The, this encouragement was there in the early church because they knew this was a part of the Christian life. It didn't mean when I get saved, everything in my life is going to go perfect in this world. I know I don't have heaven on the way to heaven. Peter would say this, 1 Peter 5, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, hey guys, remember, you have an adversary in this world. And he's trying to get anybody he can. Resist him. And understand, Christians all over the world are facing their portion of persecution. What are we going to throw off our portion? Refuse to carry it? We don't always get to choose what that looks like in our lives. But we know believers all over the world are facing that right now. We know we got brothers and sisters in this day in Nigeria and North Korea and Iraq and Iran, places all around the world that are facing a lot more difficult things than we are. And we face our own version of those things. And we can't be shocked when they come. I can't can't be in a boxing match and be surprised when I get punched in the face. Um, That's where I am. I'm in a match. And Paul says, 
or excuse me, Peter says, remember, you have an adversary who's trying to devour you that you got to resist. And remember, Christians all over the world are doing this. And it's going to happen for a while. But then the Lord is going to strengthen you and establish you and perfect you. He's going to take care of you. So we have to be patient in our endurance, in our tribulations. And we need to continue steadfastly in prayer. There's so much of this spirit of prayer in the early church. You, you can just go through the book of Acts, Acts 2, 42, 46 and 47, 6, 4, 12, 5, 12, 12, 20, 36, 21, 5. You just look through Christians just praying with each other over and over and over and over again. Paul and all his epistles, I'm praying for you. You're on my mind. I thank my God in every remembrance of you. I'm praying for you. At the end of his epistles, this person, this person, this person, this person. He's, there was this, a unique sharing of love through prayer in the early church that was different than the world knew. And one of the, one of the aspects of Christian love and Christian life is a continuance in prayer. It isn't just that we have a we pray certain prayers at certain times. It's a life of prayer. And all those different types of prayer, the normal prayers, fasting, easy prayers, laboring in prayer, every form of prayer just finds its place in its proper timing in our lives. And we continue steadfastly in the process. But there should be something unique about us, that we are quick to turn to prayer where people don't know God. They're not. They're, it's, it's just kind of like a, a set-up ritualistic thing. And it's a powerful thing when you have somebody who just prays and talks to the Lord in reality. You know, you, you should pray certainly with your family. You should pray with other believers you're here and you see somebody stand up worshiping and it looks like God's blessed. You just be like, Lord, bless that person right now. Give them what they need from you. Please, again, pray for me. Many of you do. I pray for the pastors. You pray for the worship team. If somebody begins to talk to you. That's, oh, man, we got this going on. Don't just say, I'll pray for you. Say, let's pray right now. And I'll pray for you. Even out in the world, people start complaining about stuff. You know what? Can I pray for you? It'll, it'll shock people. I was at the mechanics not that long ago. He was complaining about something in his life. I was like, you know, man, I'm a pastor. Can I just pray for you? I'm not really like a religious type, but okay. He is cool. He, people, people it's, it's unique, right? And most people aren't going to turn that down. Some will, but most won't. It's, it's something that's unique to the life of Christ. I love some, particularly some of those last p pictures in the book of Acts. It says Paul goes out on the shore with some of these believers and they just kneel down and pray. Right? It's pretty cool. You're just, if, if we were on the, the beach and you were walking by, you're at the Jersey Shore and you saw a bunch of people kneeling and praying, you'd be like, those people are Christians. And in that day and age, it was something, I'm sure, very unique to see. And it should be something that we continue steadfastly in. It's not just a time here or there, 
or just when I wake up and when I eat meals. I have a life of prayer. It's shared, particularly amongst believers. And Paul's exhortation is for them to continue in that. Let it be something that's growing in their lives. He says in 13, distributing to the needs of saints, given to hospitality. The idea here is pursuing, given to it. It's literally pursuing hospitality, pursuing the, the opportunity to fill up what is lacking in the places in the body of Christ. If I see a need, I want to be kind to that person, and I want them to feel at home if they're my brother or sister in Christ. Particularly, I think, in this day and age, you didn't have the same type of hotels and stuff we have now, Christians traveling, and there were so many that when they gave their life to Christ, so many national and family ties would be cut. There are still places in the world that if, if somebody gives their life to Christ, they basically know my relationship with my family is over. Or, you know, my relationship with my friends is over, my coworkers is over, or literally I'm going to have to flee for my life. And so to find hospitality in the body of Christ is really essential because they are your family. And even here in America, the reality is, it still happens here. You begin to live for Christ. There's still people that they know, this is going to be the end of my friendships or my family. And you're, you walk away from the Lord for a while, and then you decide you want to walk with the Lord again, and all those friends who were all tight with you aren't going to be so tight with you anymore. Man, it's important that those people come back here and they find people who love them and care about them. And you can enter into this family of Christ, be cared for, find hospitality, and certainly that works on all different levels. It's not just inviting somebody into your home. That, that's certainly a part of it. But it's, it's a pursuing of that. There's, there's something in us that we say, you know what, Lord, I want to give myself to this thing. 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Uh, certainly, Jesus gave the same command, Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. It's a command of Christ. It's not a good idea of Christ. It is a command as much as thou shalt not steal is a command. So the reality is we probably all have somebody who makes us feel like cursing in our lives. Or this is the person who gets me the, close, the closest. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. That certainly doesn't just mean using foul language, but the ideas in our culture, that's most of what we're going to face. We shouldn't wish ill on other people. And there's a reality that we know we're going to face persecution in general, and also just mean people. I think it was Voltaire who said something along the lines of, uh, there are some people in the world like wasps. They just sting you to let you know they're there. 
and those people have to be endured on some of your travels. Uh, That's sad. But the reality is some of those people will also soon become brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. Some of the people who were the greatest persecutors, like the guy writing the epistle, would become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So to bless and not to curse, to pray for those who are persecuting them or spitefully using them, that was Christ's way. was his method in the world. And you and I are supposed to take it up. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. There's There's an empathy here. We should care about the joys and the sorrows of others. Sometimes... Um, it's a little bit harder to rejoice, I think, with those who rejoice than it is to weep with those who weep. Certainly, we want to show compassion when somebody's in a difficult situation. I think we're aware of that. You know, but if somebody's like, I just found two Eagles Super Bowl tickets on the ground. Like, oh, lucky you. I was just over there. You know, you're just thinking, I could sell those for eight grand a piece. Buy a new car. Like, you're... It's a little harder sometimes to be happy for folks about things. Um, we are very self-centered, and it's typically not our first thought uh, in our mind, but it is Christ's spirit, and it should be our spirit. 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble Do not be wise in your own opinion. Be of the same mind just means to be of the same ultimate purpose, the same goal. Plans can change, but our purpose never does. As Christians, we can have all different ideas of uh, what plan we might have in life, what we want to do in life. It doesn't mean i got to have the same plan as everybody else. What it means is my purpose in life, to love God and please him, never changes, no matter what I'm doing. Paul had all different types of plans. Sometimes he wanted to go one place, that that got shut down. But his purpose in life never changed. And wherever he met with other true believers in Christ, their goal should have always been the same. They should have the same mind toward Christ, toward one another, toward what their goal and purpose is. We're on the same team, part of the same family. Doesn't mean you can't have an issue or correct somebody. Anybody that has siblings knows you can get in a fight and still be in the same family, but still have the same purpose. Paul wants them to have the same mind. There shouldn't be this this, uh, idea of we're just doing totally different things. And don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't give yourself the things that are lofty. Work with normal people. Christ was the ultimate picture of this. You know, he, he could have talked in any scenario, any learned circumstance. He could have talked about the highest things ever. And he didn't. He spoke really simply to the common people. And the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. He could have talked about the highest conceptions of things that we could possibly have. And he hung out 
and talk to fishermen mostly instead. He never connected himself with a group of people that raised his reputation. Right? When he picked the disciples, not a single one of them raised his reputation. Like, oh man, look at Jesus. He's got that guy on his side. The church always wants to do that. We want to get the next actor or actress or something they got to say in the show. Like, they're with us. Jesus is never about that. In fact, the people he hung out with lowered his reputation. It made people, it made people look down on him in a very real way. He didn't, he didn't just uh, look to move in the upper echelons of the world that he lived in. And sadly, sometimes that's what people are looking to do. They want to make their way in the, like, you know, the next level in society. We all know there's that certain societal kind of ring wherever we go. You know, you get a new job and, and there's always somebody who say like, hey, you know, we do this, they do that. And you realize, oh, there's an echelon here, right? These people are up here and they think those people are down there. That's everywhere. You kind of go in life. Jesus was never about those things. It wasn't about those circles being part of the we or not part of the they. He was just about what his father was about. So if we're looking to make our way up in the circles, we're not on a Christian path. That's... That's not what Jesus was doing. He would say, in fact, we should do the opposite. Don't set your mind on those high things. Associate with the humble. That's who Christ was. It's what he did. Don't be wise in your own opinion. It doesn't mean that we can't ever give an opinion. It just means we shouldn't be wise in our own opinion. How can I tell if I'm wise in my own opinion? Well, if I always need to share my opinion, then I'm probably wise in my own opinion. If I can never take the position of a learner, I'm wise in my own opinion. That was one of the things we could say for the disciples. They sat at Christ's feet. They were willing learners. They were willing to take that position are we the type that can never take on that character? Jesus would, in fact, say, you can learn from a little child. Pick one up, set it in their midst. Always willing to learn. Do we have that type of character? That's who Christ was, what he was like. 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Again, we're all promised a certain amount of evil in this world, but don't repay evil for evil. You can't fight sin with sin. We try to do this a lot. They did this sinful thing to me, so I will now do this sinful thing to them. Makes perfect sense. Can't repay evil for evil. Can't fight sin with sin. That'll never be pleasing to the Lord. Trying to get even is not Christian business. It's not what Jesus is about. We're called and said to give ourselves to good things. And that will be our testimony in the world. Philippians 1.27 says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm not supposed to return evil for evil. I'm supposed to live in a way that I could give the gospel anywhere. That's, that what it mean, that's what it means to have my conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. If 
if I'm returning sin for sin with one person, then try to turn around and share the gospel with somebody else. I'm not living worthy of the gospel of Christ. He would say in 1 Thessalonians 4, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are on the outside, that you may lack nothing. That if I have regard for good things in the sight of all men, if, if I just aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind my own business, and to work honestly before God and men, those good things will in themselves become a testimony. That's what my goal is. I don't need to return evil for evil. I just need to focus there. And God says, I will lack nothing if I do those things. Again, it's what he did. Christ just always about his father's business. And he says, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, Jesus and Paul didn't exactly make peace everywhere they went. Uh, actually, they stirred up quite a bit when they went places, particularly with unbelievers. Jesus even declared that he would bring a sword to families. So this doesn't mean that we can always make peace. Notice there's two qualifications in the verse here. First is this. If it is possible, because sometimes it is not. Sometimes it's not possible to make peace with people. Jesus chose rather to surrender his life than his obedience. So in obedience, sometimes to God, it is not possible to make peace with people who are against God. If people are not going to be reconciled to the Lord, they're probably not going to be reconciled to somebody who's going to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's not possible. And second, he says, as much as depends on you, then live peaceably with all men. So is the ball in our court or is the ball in their court? As much as depends on you. Paul's saying, are you the one stirring up the pot, instigating? Are you the one causing there to be no peace or to causing the peace to be unsettled? If you have to, make the first move toward peace. Don't make no move. As much as is in me, I make the move toward peace. Sometimes it won't work, but hey, ball's in their court. Right? Lord, I've, I've done my part. I've tried. At least I can say I've approached them. I've talked to them. I've, I've tried to work with my unsaved boss here. As much as is in me, Lord, I've, I've tried to make peace. And you know what? Like I said, Jesus Christ didn't have peace with everyone. But he could say he did everything he was supposed to do. And you and I, that's the goal. If it's possible, as much as depends on us, we should try to live peaceably with all men. Beloved, verse 19, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. 
Paul says, beloved, I think he pauses here. He knows this is difficult, what he's going to say now. This verse that he quotes, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, is quoted in Deuteronomy 32, 35. It's repeated again in Hebrews 10, 30. And when something, a truth, a truth is repeated in the scripture, it means God knows that his children need to be reminded of it. And something that we have to be reminded of in this world is it's not our place to take vengeance in this life, right? These believers were facing persecution. Paul is going to have his head removed from his body. Many of the people he loved and served with were martyred. Many of the people that were his own nationality, that he grew up with, that he knew that he was a part of once, rejected him, were trying to kill him. He faced all types of hardship. There was violence in that day. There's violence in our day. Sadly, in our city, you can add hundreds to the list every year who have a loved one taken from them, who wants some type of justice in one way or another. But what this is saying is when we try to avenge ourselves, we start to meddle with rights that only belong to God. This is the day of our Father's mercy to the world. We have been given the message of reconciliation, that we can tell sinners you've been reconciled to God through the work of Christ. That's the time that we live in. We're followers of Jesus. He has not avenged himself yet. He, he faced more injustice than any of us, and he has not avenged himself. And we're supposed to follow him. We don't take the lead on him. We're his followers. He has not yet avenged himself. He will avenge himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 makes it really clear. He's going to come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who obey not the gospel. Jesus doesn't say there is no vengeance. People are going to get away with their sin. Actually, the Bible says the exact opposite. God is not mocked. Nobody's going to get away with their sin. Don't be deceived. Even if they get away from other human beings, they're not getting away with things. In the end, this vengeance doesn't preclude his mercy. In fact, it makes mercy possible. The very fact that he is going to enact vengeance on all wrongs makes it possible for him to extend mercy to people. If there was no vengeance, then we wouldn't need mercy. What he's saying is, don't take it to yourselves. Leave it to me. He would write to the Corinthians who were suing each other, going to law. He would say, wouldn't you rather just accept wrong? Why would you be such a horrible testimony in the world doing that? Wouldn't, you should rather allow yourselves to be cheated. Let them have the thing. Don't, don't you understand that vengeance is mine? He is our example. And he did not avenge himself in this life ever. Even when he was resurrected, he didn't just come in and take care of the people who crucified him. Peter would say, 
It's unto you first that the gospel has come, the very people who put him to death. The message of mercy came back to you. The gospel, the good news, that people who should have vengeance can have forgiveness. That, remember, he is both just and the justifier. It doesn't say that it's never going to happen. Again, what it says is, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Paul says, give place to wrath. It doesn't say make an end of it. God is still going to have wrath. God is still going to take vengeance. And the reality is, whatever cruelties happen on the face of the earth, the reality of hell is a greater, is a greater payment than any vengeance we could want to exact by ourselves in this life. And he's the one who will perfectly work it out. He's going to be faithful when he comes again on a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood. On him is going to be written faithful and true. Faithful and true to all his promises, faithful and true to all reward, and faithful and true to all judgment. Faithful and true to everything that he has said. And nothing's going to slip by. Because God says, vengeance is mine, I do not need to avenge myself. It's a shame that believers feel like they need to apologize for this. God doesn't apologize for it. it it's his message from the beginning to humankind that if you disobey me and you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Life and death was there from the beginning. And really... That, that truth has rolled down in all of humanity. The Adam family tree in their heart knows that every act of disobedience is wrong before God. They can try to shut it off. They can try to ignore it. They can try to run from it. But all of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve have God's inner workings, those secret allies in the hearts that are saying, you're under judgment. This sin is wrong. And the Holy Spirit's in the world, convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I don't have to take God's prerogative into my own hands. He's going to take care of that. And he will do it perfectly and thoroughly. So, in fact, instead of cursing, I can bless. I can pray. Doesn't mean it's always easy. But... It is actually an answer for the Christian. Paul doesn't say, just ignore it. People are getting away with things. He's saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The repayment's going to happen. It either happens on the cross or it happens on judgment day. And God is going to take care of it either way. His judgment will be perfect, and I have to trust that. That's what he's called me to do. And we can trust that because he's going to be faithful to what he said. Therefore, Paul says, and he quotes this passage, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I'm not actually sure how that ties in. So people have two basic thoughts. Nobody knows 100%. But Psalms 11.6 and 140.10 
gives similar language that relates to this is God's continued judgment. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 gives context that this might be in this type of action, somebody will kind of have a shameful reproach and then they will be repentant. So the heaping the coals of fire on the head is either that brings them shame and they're repentant or it just adds more to the judgment that's coming their way anyway. I'm not sure which way it's going there. Uh, honestly, if I had to take a guess, I'd probably say, since the context is his judgment, that's probably what it, I would lean toward. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians 2, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Maybe it's a little bit of both, I don't know, but I think what he's saying here is, you keep doing the good that God has called you to, and that's either going to add judgment to those, or it's going to bring them to repentance. Who's sufficient for these things? For some people, we're the aroma of life. For some people, we're the aroma of death. But... The death, praise God, isn't in my hands. I want God to fully repay my sins. I don't want anything left over. I want that done with completely. And he's done that on the cross. I'm thankful that he's going to take care of that. I'm going to leave that prerogative in his hands because he says he will do it. And he will take care of it. So... Paul can sum it up in 21 by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The good that he's talking about is really, I think, everything he's mentioned in this chapter. This is how we overcome evil in the world. We love one another. We're hospitable. We pray. We're diligent. We give ourselves to to his service. This, This love without hypocrisy, this not repaying evil for evil, this... This is good in the world, and it overcomes evil. And I love this. This sentence so sums up the spirit of Jesus Christ, because he was perfect, and he came into our world. And think of how much evil he had to overcome. Literally, Satan, demons, the Pharisees, his own family, the world, the cross. He was perfect, That means every ounce of sin in the world exerted a pressure against him we can't understand. Because it was unlike him. And yet what what came from him was only good. He was not overcome by the evil around him. He overcame that evil with his good. You think of with his own disciples, him constantly overcoming their evil with his good. Their pride their ignorance, their anger, their racism, their impatience, their unbelief, their misunderstandings, their bickering, their denials, their betrayals, their abandonments, their fears, their little love. None of those things drove him away from them. His rebukes never caused him to go further from them. All that ever happened was the evil in them was overcome by the good in him. It's who he is. And I love this verse. 
not because it's true of me, because it's true of him. Because I know that the evil I can't overcome in myself will not overcome him. And he's with me. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it's a blessing to know that he's still like that. And that whatever I can come with that is not this, he can overcome it with the good in him. And you know, those disciples at the end were closer to him than ever and more like him than ever. And he still wants to do the same thing in us. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I might encourage you before you, well, I am going to encourage you. You don't have to, but before you take off tonight, you know, there's a long list of things. It's easy to hear stuff and just kind of roll, but maybe with your wife or one other person you might be here with. Uh, before you take off, well, the pastors will be down here if you want to pray with one of us, but I encourage you to just pick out one of those things and sit down with another believer next to you and just say, pray this for me. I just want more of this in my life. I want the Holy Spirit to work this thing in me. So no pressure if you don't want to, but if you want to continue steadfastly in prayer, an opportunity to do so. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're good. And you do good. And you'll never change. And you're never going to be overcome by evil. And I thank you, Lord, that that can give us confidence to come to you, we who are evil. And we just say to you, Lord, command us what you will. Tell us to do anything as long as you give us what you command. We need the goodness from you. We need the life from you. So fill us with your spirit, Lord. We believe that you still want to pour that out in our hearts and in our lives. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.